listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. How does it all end? How does everything go down in the end of things? Biblically speaking, whenever one thing comes to an end, it's the beginning of something brand new. Whenever God finishes something, it always is the transition into something brand new. And this is absolutely true here in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at in Luke chapter 21. I want to zero in on verses 25 through 28, but in order to get the context of 25 to 28, we have to look at the whole chunk in which those verses take place. So look with me at Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. In our Lord's word says this. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults or rumors of war, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, or ethnic group against ethnic group, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake." This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by even parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Its devastation or destruction or depopulation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance or punishment to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun 
and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them the parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now let's focus, let's zero in right on four verses of Scripture in this passage, verses 25 through 28. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You know, look at this particular word that's used in verse 25. There will be signs, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity, etc., etc. The word signs, you know, it's the same word that's used here as what we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 12. You're saying, well, what's Luke chapter 2, verse 12? That's where the angel Gabriel appeared before the shepherds and said, and this will be a sign for you. You will see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. What wouldn't have been unusual is to see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's what you did with babies then. It's even what you do today with a baby. You wrap it up nice and tight into this nice bundle of joy. But what would have been unusual is to have that bundle of joy wrapped up in swaddling cloths and placed into the unsanitized feeding trough called a manger. That would have been unusual. You see, when God gives a sign, what God does is he makes the sign unmistakable, unusual. And that's the whole point, that the shepherds were given an unusual sign to know that this is the Messiah, this is the Savior that was born. It wouldn't just be a baby, it would be this particular baby because nobody in their right mind would have taken a newborn baby and laid it into the feeding trough of an animal. But the reason why that was so significant is because God wanted to make a statement, wanted to make sure that the shepherds didn't mistake, that they did not mistake what they had in front of them in the Messiah, the Savior, because you have all the Old Testament teachings pointing to the arrival of the one, as we'll look at, 
the amazing significance of what Scripture says about the one fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in our time together. But it's one thing for God to make clear that this is coming, this is on the horizon. But when the arrival time came, we want to make sure that that's not mistaken. And so that's why the word sign is used. And we see that the sign was unique. It was significant. It was unusual. It was one of a kind. This is the word that's used here. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. The word perplexity actually means anxiety, okay? Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People dropping dead from fear. That's what it means. People fainting with fear. That word fainting could be translated as to cease breathing, to be breathless and to die. People fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now what's presented here, if you're listening by podcast, you're listening by radio, you're not going to see what I'm about to do. You'll just get to hear a little bit of it. But what is being presented here is such a trauma, such a dramatic set of circumstances. It is so mind-blowing. It's so significant. It's so unique. It's so one-of-a-kind. It's so unmistakable that this is people looking at the sun, looking at the moon, looking at the stars, looking what's happening in the nation, looking at the roaring of the waves and saying, oh my goodness, I don't believe what I see. And they stop breathing and they die because it's that mind-blowing, it's that mind-boggling, it's that unprecedented, it is that unique, it is that significant. When God wants to make a statement, he makes it so that it's absolutely unmistakable as the baby was in the manger. So the signs at the end will be unique unmistakable, one of a kind, and filled with fear. There's been talk these days about four blood moons. I would suspect that many of you have read the book about the four blood moons. Some of you have seen the movie about the four blood moons. My wife and my boys and I were out there trying to take a look at one of the four blood moons. We got chips and salsa, we got things to eat, and we set up our telescope. Many of you did, other people did around the world to watch this amazing set of circumstances, this amazing event that doesn't come around except for you know once in a blue moon, pun intended. Not a frequent event, not a frequent set of circumstances. It's not frequently repeated throughout history, but some have speculated that that's maybe an indication that we are living in the last days. What, what, what happened with the moons happening over a two-year time period and the changing of the color through the eclipse, the lunar eclipse, it's so rare. Well, let me tell you something. That is not this, what the Bible is speaking of. 
And you might disagree at first. You might have liked that book, The Four Blood Moons. And there are well-intentioned people everywhere who exegete and interpret scripture in very poor ways. I know that they sell books and they make movies and they mean well, but nonetheless, their interpretation of scripture is terrible. And by the time we're done, I'm going to convince you that the four blood moons are not in any way, shape, or form associated or affiliated with this. Number one, that was a chips and salsa event. Nobody was watching the four blood moons. Even if you watched all four of them, the end result of you watching was not, falling on the floor as if you're dead, quaking and shaking. Number two, what's conveniently left out of the four blood moons story, you know, you've heard that there are always significant events that happen or there are significant events of epic proportions that have taken place historically when the four blood moons have appeared in the past. What they don't tell you is that there are also in history very insignificant forgettable events that transpired during some of the other four blood moons. You see, what's presented here in Luke's gospel is the sign that is given as a culmination of signs that together converge and add up to one big mind-blowing experience that indicate the end has come. And the end, see, we're concerned about what's happening in the United States of America, and we should be, but the end is not wrapped up in the United States of America. The end is wrapped up in God's prophetic end times agenda where the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem is the centerpiece. How do I know that? I'm not making this stuff up. Look with me at verse 24. Luke 21, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In our last time together, we talked about the times of the Gentiles. I'm not going to go into detail about that now. You can listen to the podcast, the radio broadcast, but the point being that first, or at least simultaneously, something significant happens to Jerusalem where the non-Jewish people, the times of the Gentiles is at hand, and the non-Jewish people are surrounding Jerusalem, and it is trampled, it is devastated. The immediate fulfillment close to Jesus' day in 70 AD was the destruction of the temple. The ultimate fulfillment is yet to happen. And so when we look at what's happening in world events, Jerusalem has not yet been trampled. There has not been a convergence of signs in the sun and the moon and the stars that have come together in such a way that people are scared to death, literally, in anxiety, wondering, what does this mean? to the point of being just on the verge of death. You see, what God has done through this sign is help us understand that when the end is at hand, it will not be mistakable. You will not be wondering, is this it? I will not be wondering, is this it? People who are alive, whether we're alive or not alive, whether we're around or not around. And by the way, yes, I know about the different theological views, the post-trib, the mid-trib, the 
et cetera, et cetera. And the premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial views, I'm not that stupid to try to get up and preach God's word without being aware of those, but hopefully you're smart enough to look at what Jesus is saying here and take it to heart that some will be filled with fear while others are filled with faith. The life of a disciple is one that is characterized by being faith-filled, not fear-filled. Look at the last verse here in this section we're looking at, verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. Now we're going to take a look at what that redemption is, or more importantly, a better way to put it, who that redemption is. Because redemption is wrapped up not so much in a thing as much as a person who did something and is going to do something very significant for somebody who is a disciple. And what did redemption do? What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness of my sins that we get to experience by faith in Jesus Christ. And then there is yet a redemption to be coming, the fulfillment, the culmination of our redemption where we eventually get to see God face to face. And so there's a contrast here that is taking place, and the contrast is between dabblers and disciples as it always is. It's always between dabblers and disciples. Dabblers are fear-filled. Disciples are faith-filled. Now, if you think what's happening in the United States of America is significant and you're concerned about it, you should be concerned about it. First Timothy chapter 2, the first few verses, tell us that as a disciple, we are to pray for those in authority, kings and all of those in high places. We are to pray God's will that people live peaceable, quiet lives with each other. We are to pray that God's agenda, that all people everywhere get saved and come to a knowledge of him through salvation and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so you need to ask yourself this question. I need to ask myself this question. What type of a government would you rather pray for, submit to, and be concerned about? One that is hostile to your ability and my ability, our ability as a church to fulfill the will of God? to lead people to Christ and to help people live at peace with each other? Would you rather support and pray for and submit to a government that is hostile to that or one that is at least sympathetic to the will of God revealed in Scripture? Most clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first five verses. Look at that sometime when you've got an opportunity. Make it your ambition because as an American who is a Christian living in this country, whether you're a citizen of this country or whether you're just living in this country, if you enjoy America and you are a Christian, that this is where you've decided to hang your hat, you better be concerned with the will of Almighty God as it's revealed in Scripture. And you've got to answer this question, what type of a government and what kind of leaders would I like to submit to and pray for and be under? It's a no-brainer answer. The answer is, whatever government and whichever leaders will allow me the most freedom to preach the gospel, teach the word of God, and help people everywhere in this country live at peace, because that is the will of God. But what's interesting 
is that even though what's happening in the United States of America should concern you if you're a disciple and you're paying attention to the will of God and you're praying for the will of God, you're submitting yourself to the will of God, the truth is that what is happening in this nation is not even so much as a blip on the eschatological, million dollar word, end times scheme of things. It's not even a blip. What's happening in this nation is not even significant because it's not mentioned overtly in the scriptures. What is mentioned in the scripture is the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel because if you want to know where we are in the end time scheme of things, you look at what's happening to Jerusalem, you look at what's happening to the nation of Israel now. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And either after that time or during that time, there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars. Look at what it says in verse 25. And on the earth, distress of nations in anxiety because the roaring of the sea and the waves, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Have we witnessed that? Any time recently, while there's a convergence of things happening in the sun and the moon and the stars. See, there can be all kinds of signs that appear. I just read that just a few days ago, scientists discovered the largest supernova in history. Incomprehensible. And there have been times when even I've wondered, you might have wondered, well, maybe that's the kind of sign. Maybe that's the kind of sign that indicates the end. No, that discovery causes scientists to ooh and ah, but not hold their breath and drop over dead. The characteristic of the sign will be so overwhelming in the convergence of what's happening in the heavenly bodies and the roaring of the sea that people will faint with fear knowing something significant is about to happen. That's why people are breathless, falling over characteristically, as Jesus says, falling over as if dead, if not dying. In verse 26, people fainting with fear, with foreboding, with expectation of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Make no mistake about it because God doesn't want you to make a mistake about it, doesn't want me to make a mistake about it. Whether we're there when this happens or it happens after our lifetime, you can read all the books you want about all the theology, about the timing and the circumstances. The truth of the matter is the majority of the world, those who are dabblers, those who are not saved and sanctified by the grace and the mercy of Almighty God through personal faith in Jesus Christ, those people will be fear-filled. They will be overcome to the point of death or nearly to the point of death because what they see in the sun and the moon and the stars, after the earthquakes, after the wars and the rumors of war, which are the beginning of things. Remember, Jesus says the end will not take place. The end will not be at once in verse 9. There's a progression here that takes place. But by the time we get to this particular part, the culmination, the progression, 
What happens in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the raging of the waves in the sea will be so significant, it will be unparalleled, not seen before, can't be compared to anything before, because it is that significant of a sign. And the people who do not have faith in Jesus as their Messiah, their lives will be characterized by being filled up with fear. Now, If you're filled up with fear over what's happening in our nation, you've lost sight of how God wants you to live. It doesn't mean that we're to turn a cheek to what's happening. If anything, we should be turning our cheek toward what's happening so that we can pray, so that we can be engaged, so that we can do what? Be salt and light. You can't be salt and light if you're turning the cheek away from what's happening. You can't be praying for the will of God and being engaged in what's happening if you're not reading the news, multiple news sources. You should be concerned about what's happening in the nation and what's taking place in the world because that's the only way that you can effectively pray. But you also have to understand the way Jesus wants you to live, the way he wants me to live, the way he wants every single disciple to live, whether it is a series of events that we live through or whether whatever series of events you're living through right now, you're looking in the right direction. You see, the world is going to be looking out and up, waiting with anticipation this unusual set of circumstances, overwhelming me in fear, overwhelming us in fear and trepidation, helps me understand something big, unprecedented is on the horizon and the disciple recognizes the same thing, but it's wrapped up in verse 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, let's put a name and a face to what Jesus is speaking about, to who Jesus is speaking about, and that's found in verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There it is. When? When these signs have been fulfilled, while the world is going to hell in a handbag, while the world is fear-filled, the disciples should be faith-filled. And Jesus is saying that while all these things take place, verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What a contrast to the first coming of Jesus Christ, born in a lowly set of circumstances, laid in a manger, and then led away, not against his will, but in accordance with his will, in humility and humiliation, spat upon, beaten beyond recognition. Jesus' first coming was in humiliation, giving himself to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, being stripped and being completely naked, hanging on the cross so that he could take the place of you and the place of me, pay a price that we couldn't pay for a penalty that we deserve to pay. But in this second coming 
of Jesus Christ. It will not be in any way, shape, or form one of humiliation. You see, the phrase that Jesus used about himself, son of man, is important to understand. It's Jesus' most popular title that he attributed to himself, and you need to understand it, I need to understand it as a disciple. There's a significance in what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is being audacious. Are you kidding me, Jesus? He's either out of his mind or completely in his right mind. He says, then you will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with Power, that means might and strength and force and great glory. By this time, if you're a disciple and you hear Jesus talking about the Son of Man, you know that he's referring to himself. By this time, if you've been following us in this series and if you've been reading Luke's gospel, you know that Son of Man equals Jesus. So Jesus is saying, then you will see me coming on the clouds with great power and great glory. The second time when Jesus comes back won't be one of humiliation at all. It will be one of exaltation. And Jesus wants you to understand and he wants me to understand. He wanted the disciples in his day to understand. While the world is filled with fear, You who are not of the world are to be filled with faith. You are to look up because your redemption, namely me, Jesus of Nazareth, is drawing near. And my coming will be characterized with power and with great glory in an unprecedented way. Now, if we're not careful, we might just zip through a passage like this and not connect the dots as clearly as Jesus wanted the disciples to connect the dots, as Jesus wants the the disciples today, he wants us to connect these dots. What will the Son of Man be doing when he returns? Who is the Son of Man? Where does Jesus get that phrase from, and how is it significant? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, look with me at what it says. See, this is after Daniel was in the lion's den. Daniel has been given the ability to interpret dreams, and he's been given by God visions of the end times. Daniel, one of the most significant books in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, and then complemented by the book of Revelation in the New Testament. He receives visions from Almighty God, and they're about the end times. And look with me at Daniel 7, 13, and let's look at what one of these particular visions involves. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, there's that phrase, that title, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is coming before Almighty God, the Father. And to him... The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I don't know about you, but that last part of verse 14 should really make it a finished point. The kingdom of the Son of Man will be an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away, and it shall not be destroyed, meaning it will be eternal. 
Now, just for a moment, I want you to take this cloud imagery and I want you to put it over here on the side, okay? Put the cloud imagery over here. It's significant because Daniel mentions it. It's significant because Jesus mentions it. And by the time we're done, your jaw is probably going to be hanging on the floor as you're amazed as you go from having three circuits blown to four to five to six to seven until you're not just firing on three cylinders or four cylinders, but now you're firing on eight cylinders as you're just amazed at the deliberate way in which Jesus communicated. And so that there's not, Jesus is, is demystifying the son of man. See, in Daniel chapter seven, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So Jesus in Luke 21 says, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So the disciples would have been familiar with Daniel chapter seven. We as disciples today are now familiar with Daniel chapter seven. And there's something significant about what Daniel is saying in verse 14. And verse 13, he says, his dominion will be an everlasting dominion, right? To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, a kingdom that will be eternal. Now, don't lose me on this because it's absolutely significant to understand if we go to Genesis chapter 12. See, the Bible interprets itself and there's this idea of the story of God unfolding and we get more and more clarity as time passes and as we read one book and another. And this is a beautiful example of that. Put that cloud imagery off to the side for a moment and let's get to the nature of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and how Jesus ties into that and the significance of what Jesus is saying and what it means. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, speaking of the Jewish people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring or your seed, as Galatians 3.16 makes clear, it's one particular individual, I will give this land. So there's a promise of land. There's a promise of national blessing where a nation will come from Abraham, or at that point, Abram. And there is a promise of international global blessing that there will be one individual who will come from the line of Abram, then it would become Abraham, through whom the whole world will be blessed. And we understand that that individual, if we read the New Testament, is Jesus. He's the promised offspring. He's the promised seed. And then we go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what can you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, no seed. 
No individual heir. And a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram is having an argument with God. You told me that you're going to give me a nation. You told me that the whole world will be blessed through one particular individual. I'm old. We don't have one of those. All I've got is a servant in my household. It doesn't seem like you're going to promise what you delivered. But if the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that God does what he promises. He delivers what he says he's going to do. And here in Genesis chapter 15, look what God says to him in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God said, I said what I meant. I meant what I said. I made a promise. I'm going to make good on my promise. And verse six, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, verse seven, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then we get to Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And by the way, the idea of being blameless means as far as it's within your ability, humanly speaking, walk with me. That's God's call on your life and on mine. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Hmm. Kings shall come from you. So we see the development of the Abrahamic covenant that God begins to talk about actual kings. And in order to have a king or kings, you have to have actual subjects. You have to have an actual nation. That's what's being presented here. So when we look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we see the progression and the further development of what God promised. Now, don't lose me here because this is going to dovetail in beautifully with where we started in Luke 21. See, there's the Abrahamic covenant, and then there's also the Davidic covenant, which puts flesh to the bone, so to speak, connects the dots. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, God speaking to David. Now, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever, Tremendously significant. What God is promising David is that there would be a literal king ruling and reigning over a literal 
kingdom, somebody who was of the line of David, and we read the beginning of the Gospels, we know that Jesus is purposely tied to the ancestry of David because it's in fulfillment of this particular promise, the Davidic covenant, which is an overflow from the Abrahamic covenant. See, God's movement is forward. God makes the promise, delivers the promise, reveals a little bit more, makes good on what he promised, and it depends upon God, not upon man. That's why God is telling David, you're going to be dead. I'm going to do it after you have absolutely no ability to make it happen because it's my word, not yours. And Daniel talks about in chapter seven, you just saw it, we just looked at it. The son of man coming on the clouds and having a kingdom that would be forever and ever. And then we see Jesus saying, then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. And now what we want to do is we want to look at the book of Acts in chapter 1. And if you're paying attention, if you're seeing the dots connected, you will understand something that even Daniel didn't understand. Even Abraham didn't understand. See, there's tremendous value in reading the Bible because when we read the Bible, it causes fear to dissolve and faith to well up. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Don't you love the disciples, Lord? How about now? Lord, when is all this stuff going to be fulfilled? When are these stones going to be torn down in the temple? Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What kingdom? Huh, seems to me like the disciples were expecting a literal king to rule over a literal nation. And see, they hadn't had one of those for a while. They were familiar with the Davidic covenant. They knew that the Messiah was supposed to be from the line of David. So they're asking, Lord, now? Lord, now that everything's done, you're resurrected, now are we going to experience the king and the nation of Israel ruling over the kingdom? Is it now? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You've got to love Jesus because he's always taking the disciples just as he's always taking us from what we thought was important to what he knows is important. But isn't this what's happening in your Bible study time? When you're in your secret closet in a set-apart place, when you have your Bible open and you're reading the Word of God and you're just minding your own business, you just open the Bible, you want to spend some time with the Lord because that's the primary way that God speaks through his Word. You want God to speak to you in another way and you're neglecting the Word of God, you're missing the primary way that God has given us. The primary means that God has given us through which he speaks. His word. You can have a word from God anytime you want it, courtesy of the Bible. So in your private time, when you open the Bible, this happens to me all the time. You open up the Bible and you're looking for a word from Almighty God, minding your own business. You know what the passage is speaking about. Then over here, there's a still small voice talking to you about a relationship with somebody. Over here, there's that still small voice from Almighty God talking to you about forgiveness or talking to you about this issue or that issue. Or for me, can I be brutally honest with you for a moment? Or do you want me to lie to you? One of the things that God is speaking to me about is the issue of money. What am I doing with the money that God gives me? What am I doing with God's money? 
See, that's what it is. It's God's money that he gives to us for time to do something eternally significant with that he could give us more money at any time, take away the money that he's given us. It all belongs to God. It's not your money. It's not my money. It's God's money that he gives us for a short time called life. And he wants you and he wants me to do something eternally significant with it. And I don't know about you, but this happens to me and it should be happening to you if you're reading the Bible the way you should be reading it. You're reading the Bible, minding your own business, and bam, God speaks to you about an area or areas of your life. And this is what we see here in the lives of the disciples. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven? Hey, I don't want you to be fixated and focused on the the when. But here's something I do want you to be fixated and focused on in the meantime. I'll take care of the kingdom provided that you are kingdom-minded. I'll take care of the kingdom provided that you are kingdom-minded. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 1. He said to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's what I want you to focus on. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus wants a disciple to be focused upon. And when he had said these things in verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now take that cloud imagery off that back burner that I told you to put aside for a moment and bring it back to the forefront because now it's going to become incredibly important. Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives, a cloud hides him from their sight, and while they're looking up at this unbelievable, never-before sight, can't believe that Jesus is defying gravity, he ascends, leaves this earth, and the cloud hides them from their sight. And while they're looking up, can't even believe what they're seeing. Verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are actually angels. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come in the same way that you saw him go up into heaven. How did he go up into heaven? The clouds hide him. What does Daniel say? The Son of Man coming on the clouds with a kingdom that will never end. His dominion will be forever and ever and ever and ever. The Davidic covenant. There will be one coming from your line, from the house of David, who will rule and reign forever. I made a promise. I'm going to make good on that promise so that when we get to Luke chapter 21 and we hear Jesus say that this will happen after the sign of all these terrible, dastardly things occurring with the sun and the moon and the stars and the distress of nations and perplexity and the roaring of the sea, then you will see me, the Son of Man, coming in a cloud with great power. While the world is fear-filled, quaking and shaking. You think what's happening in this nation is bad? It is nothing compared to what will one day come upon the whole earth 
it will be so bad and so terrible that people's breath will be taken away as they faint in fear, but not for you as a disciple. Look up. When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, look up because your redemption is drawing near. And so while the rest of the world is fear-filled, the disciple is faith-filled, looking up while others are looking out, not falling over, losing your breath out of fear and perplexity when the sign culminates, when the sun and the moon and the stars and the nations raging after all the wars and rumors of wars. Now we are to look up for our redemption draws near and that redemption is wrapped up in the person and the works of the Son of Man whose name is Jesus. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.